Right. <clears throat> so if you're coming from a Judeo-Christian background, this will seem a lot less foreign than, than Hinduism was. That uh, I've also studied Hinduism, and I'll tell you, Father Tom's presentation was actually pretty amazing in terms of how he brought everything together. Uh, so let's see if I can do some justice to Islam. <clears throat> so first, to, to get us a sense of how religious communities or religious ideas place themselves in relationship with other people. If we're looking at uh, Christianity from within a Jewish lens, what is Christianity? How do we look at Christianity? What do you think? Spin off of Judaism? Yeah, essentially from within Judaism, and we're being obviously very simplistic, uh, Christianity would be an offshoot, right? It's right on some things, but then goes in the wrong direction on some things. Likewise, from within a Jewish lens, the same view would be towards Islam, that it's correct on some things, incorrect on some things. But let's shift. If we're in a Christian lens, how do we look at Judaism? How does you answer that question? Sorry? So, so essentially, uh, Christianity would be the fulfillment of Judaism, right? And in particular, Jesus will be the promised Messiah of Judaism, right? So if we were to say, this is Moses in Judaism, then completed in Jesus, right? I studied math a long time ago, so I do a lot of formulas. I don't know if any of them make any sense. Okay. But to get a sense of how this works in the Islamic paradigm, think of Moses as the law, Jesus as the spirituality, or Moses as actions. So law often focuses on actions, and then Jesus will be on the condition of the heart. So to get a sense of how Islam works, it's not so much Moses leading to Jesus, it'd be Moses plus Jesus is Islam. So the law on the outside, the heart on the inside. And so the term in the Islamic paradigm for the law is the Sharia, and the term for the spirituality is the way of the Sufis. So Islam on the outside is the law, and then Islam on the inside is the spirituality. Okay. Makes sense so far, kind of ish, to give us a sense of how to, how to make sense of all this. So having said that, let's get into some core ideas in Islam, then that'll help us explore some, some mythologies or some myths related to Islam. The word itself has a couple translations. Uh, submission, obedience, peace. The most literal translation would be to enter into peace. That's literally the meaning of Islam. So one who does Islam is a Muslim. So one who is in an act of obedience or in an act of submission or entering into peace is a Muslim. Okay. Now, the core theology of Islam all across the different sectarian groups, so there's about a billion and a half Muslims in the world, this is common all across the board. If I add anything more to this, this is where we get into different sectarian groups. The first part is that there is no ilah but Allah, and the second part is Muhammad is the messenger 
of, of Allah. I feel like as I say this, a storm is brewing outside. So, <laughs> this is commonly translated as there is no God, lowercase g, but God, capital G. As, as Father Tom mentioned, Allah is the same one to whom we are referring when we are saying Yahweh. Uh, a lot of times when I want to work on my Arabic, I'll actually read an Arabic translation of the Bible. And so every time God is mentioned, the word Allah is written. So <clears throat> in this paradigm, what do we mean by God, lowercase g? Or what do we mean by an ilah? Whatever you take as a God is whatever it is you're turning to above all else to fulfill a couple of core needs. One is to take you from danger into safety. Meaning whatever it is you're relying upon above everything else to keep you out of danger, to keep you into safety, to take you into safety is what you take as a God. Whatever it is you rely upon to take you out of confusion into clarity is what you take as a God. You might rely upon your intellect, you might rely upon knowledge, but what if that is not helping you? Then what do you rely upon? Above all else. Whatever it is you rely upon to take you from despair into hope is whatever you take as a God. Again, above all else, when all else fails. The most common term is whatever it is you worship is what you take as a God. Now, what do we mean when we're speaking in our language by worship? What does it mean to worship something? I heard a voice. Where's this voice? To follow. Yeah, it would include to follow, to revere. What else? What else does it mean to worship something? They sound like monitor rights. What does it mean? Sorry? To pray to. Yeah, to praise, to sacrifice for. So here, the word that we're translating is worship, is whatever it is or to whomever it is, you give your most extreme love. So think about this, when you love someone, when you love a beloved, you long to be in their company, you don't like being away from them, you may change yourself to be like what they, what they would prefer, you hope they love you back. And then deeper than love is to adore, now you're putting your beloved on a pedestal, there's the element of awe, all you can perceive is perfection coming from your beloved, deeper than that is worship, complete surrender, complete voluntary loving surrender. So we're saying everyone in this paradigm takes something as an ilah. Everybody surrenders to something. It may be the supreme being. It may be a bottle of liquor. It may be money. Maybe multiple things. And so the basic call of the first half of this theology is anything you turn to other than the supreme being to fulfill these core needs can't fulfill those needs. Only the divine can fulfill these, these needs. That's the first half. The second half is that the divine communicates with humanity a whole bunch of different ways. And one particular way is by appointing prophets. A prophet in the Islamic paradigm is someone who's been given the responsibility to call their people back to God. To call their people to this message. Whatever it is you're turning to, turn away from, turn only to God. And so their call is part of it, and then part of it is that they must also be the model of the call. What does it mean 
to embody this life in which you take nothing as a god except for God himself. And there are some prophets that also receive scripture. Those are called messengers. So a messenger is a prophet with a scripture to deliver. Meaning the divine has revealed some sort of scripture, some sort of collection of words to then deliver to to their people. In the Islamic paradigm, there are about 1,400... No, I'm sorry. There's about 120,000 prophets in history. And then about 1,400 messengers. And I'll give you the names of some of them in Arabic and see if they sound familiar. So... So here is a prophet. Name in Arabic is pronounced Adam. What does that sound like? Yeah, that was pretty easy. Okay. Nuh. Noah. Ibrahim. Abraham. Uh, Ismail. Ishmael. Ishaq. Isaac. Dawood, David, Suleiman, Solomon, uh, let's see, Musa, Moses, Harun, this is Aaron, brother of Moses. And then we have Isa, Jesus. And Yahya, John the Baptist. And then the last of these messengers, <laughs> yeah, this one, this one says, you couldn't get this one? <laughs> the last of these prophets and messengers is Muhammad. Of these, so these are all prophets, these are prophets that have received scripture in the Islamic paradigm. So we're saying in the Islamic paradigm, Abraham received a scripture. I've never come across anyone who claims to have the scripture revealed to Abraham. Dawood is a recipient of scripture. In Arabic, it's called the Zabur. May or may not be the same as the Psalms. Musa received the Torah. What does that sound like? Torah. Torah, right. Isa received a scripture called the Injil. And I've only met one person in history who claims to have the Injil. This is an anticlimactic story, but... About 30, 40 years ago when I, was, when I was going to college, I was catching the CTA at the 95th Street stop, all in the far south side. And there's a man, an African-American man, dressed in Pakistani clothes with this table with Arabic writing on it. And I'm staring at this. I go, is this Islam? He goes, no, this is the Injil. And I look again, and it's Arabic. I go, is this the Quran? He goes, no, this is the Injil. And then I wasn't interested anymore, and I left. But I wish I kind of went back to see what, what he possessed. But what is different and what is common among all these scriptures, and Muhammad, he receives a scripture called the Quran. They all have the exact same core message in their particular languages. But they also address the practice of this in different aspects of life. So in the Islamic paradigm, the scripture that Moses had focused on law and history which sounds kind of like what we speak about when we speak about the Torah. And the scripture that Jesus has, when, or had when he, uh, that he received, 
and the Islamic paradigm focused more on faith, the condition of the heart, and works. So think back to that diagram I wrote where you have the law on the outside and faith and spirituality on the inside put them together. And in the Islamic paradigm, the completion of this whole process of communication from God to humanity is in Muhammad and the Quran. Meaning, covering all these things but putting them all in, according to the Islamic paradigm, in their proper place. Where does law fit? Where does the spirituality fit? Where does your connection with nature fit? Suleiman, he has this very deep connection with nature. Dawood, he has a type of intellectual brilliance. Uh, Ibrahim, Abraham, he is uh, a very, very wise, sharp preacher who's going around the world preaching. Noah is one who's very persistent in calling people to the divine, so forth and so on. Right? How do all these fit into one complete whole? That is the Islamic paradigm. Now, having said that, because we're speaking in a Jesuit context, in a Christian context, let's speak specifically about the story of Jesus in, in the Islamic tradition. And part of the point that I'm making here is to really try to illustrate uh, how close Islam and Christianity in particular are. Some subtle but significant differences. So as I share these stories, if you're familiar with the biblical narratives, try to compare and contrast what's similar, what's different, where are there gaps, so and so on. So there's a figure in Islamic history named Imran who is married to a woman, and her name is not given in the Quran, and I've forgotten what her name is. And she is pregnant, and she says, she makes a prayer to the divine. And she says, I dedicate to you what is in my womb. And what that means is that she wants to de dedicate her child to become a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. And she gives birth to a girl. And she's speaking to the divine, and she says to the divine, I gave birth to a girl. Okay. Meaning she's surprised. She should have given birth to a boy, but then grow up to be a priest. And then she's told, no boy is like this girl. And the name of this girl, again, this is all in the Arabic text, is Maryam, which sounds like Mary. Okay. To fulfill her promise, she dedicates her daughter to the priests in the temple to be raised in worship of the divine. And the priests are drawing straws to decide whom or who is going to have the responsibility of taking care of her, of nurturing her, of mentoring her. And the priest who is given this responsibility, his name is in the Islamic paradigm, in Arabic, Zakaria. Which sounds like? Zach, yeah, exactly. Okay, and so Zechariah. And he would visit her as she's growing up to give her food, and she would already have food. And he'd ask her, where did you get this food from? Meaning no one has access to her room, and she said, the divine gave this to me. This is her level of faith that even her food is being provided to her. This inspires him to, to then pray. He is married, but without child. And so he, pray, he goes to the temple, to the sanctuary, and he prays to the divine for a son. And he's told, you will have a son. And your son's name is going to be Yahya. He says to, the, uh, to this 
angel that's speaking to him, how can I have a son? I'm so old, my wife is barren, and he's told this is easy for the divine. Mary is growing up, and then she gets visited from a man. And she's in these quarters, she's very vulnerable, and she says to this man, if you're an honorable man, you're not going to come any closer. And the man says to her, I'm a messenger coming from God to tell you that you're going to have a son. And she says the same thing that Zechariah says. How can I have a son? Or how can I have a child? She says, I've never been with a man. And what is she told? This is easy for the divine. And the name of your child will be Esau. She gets pregnant, and baby is growing, and time comes for her to deliver her baby. She leaves the temple, and she's instructed to go to this body of water. I forgot if it was a river or a lake nearby. And she's going through the pains of delivery. Of, of delivery. And so this messenger, who is the angel Gabriel, says to her, grab this palm tree and shake it, and then eat some of the dates that fall down. Okay. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to move a palm tree. Okay. It's probably easier to move this wall. But with faith, you have very tremendous strength. And she gives birth to Esau. And then she's going back to her people with her baby. And she enters her town, and everybody is shocked. And they start saying to her, what have you done? Your father is an honorable man. Your brother is an honorable man. And then she points to her baby. And her baby starts speaking. And her baby says... (coughs) I am a messenger of God, and peace on me from the day I was born till the day I die. And so, Jesus, Esau, is growing up, and as he's growing, he is calling people to this message, no God but God. And there's this big, big gap in the story that's not covered in in Islamic literature, you know, in between birth until his latter years. And what else does he do? He... As part of his call, he is performing what in our language would be miracles. The subtle difference is that in the Islamic uh, language, or in the Arabic language, the Quranic language, he is performing these miracles with the support of the divine. So he takes a piece of clay, forms it into a bird, and gives it life. A leper comes to him, he heals the leper. Right? A blind man comes to him, and he cures the blind man. And in the process, he also, in our language, he denounces the hypocrites. So these are especially the hypocrite preachers. He is also denouncing the oppression of the government. And this leads to both the preachers and the government, people of the government, to turn against him. Now, what's interesting here is that in the Islamic paradigm, he is not crucified. There are people going after him, and then he is lifted up to the divine. One of his titles is Al-Masih. It sounds like what? Messiah. Another of his titles, and we'll come back to this in a moment, another of his titles is Isa. Ibn Maryam. It's very common 
in these uh, Semitic languages that your name, your name is your name, your father's name, that father, that person's father's name, and so forth and so on, right? And here is Isa, son of Mary. This is read two ways. One, in the Islamic paradigm, it's emphasizing that he is not son of God, he's son of Mary. Okay? But there's actually something else subtle here that a lot of Muslims don't recognize. The normal way of saying somebody, son of somebody, would be bin, right? The, a bad example of this would be Osama bin Laden, right? Not the best example. But when it's Isa ibn Maryam, we're saying this is one of his titles, that one of his honors is that he's the son of Mary. Now, Masih, so he is lifted up to the divine, and then in the Islamic paradigm, he will be returning at the end of time. And there'll be global chaos, everything will be upside down, massive battles between bad and good, and he will be leading forces against someone else who is claiming to be God, but his title, or the title that believers will give to him, is the imposter messiah. So what does that sound like? The Antichrist. Dun, dun, dun. And he will lead battles and forces to defeat uh, the, uh, the, the Antichrist. In the language that he used when he was a baby, he says, peace on me from the day I was born to the day I die. There's an, uh, a subtlety in the Arabic. The word that he's using for the day I die is implying that he's going to be above a certain age, above 40s. And so this is commonly understood to mean that he will be coming back and he will die in this whole process too. Okay. There are all the other things that he will do that we can get into. But the reason I want to share this story is to make, to make the point that in the Islamic paradigm, look at how central Jesus is and the narrative of Jesus is in the Islamic paradigm. Just about every Muslim you meet will have a sister or a cousin named Maryam. Any Muslims in this room? Okay, do you have any relatives named Maryam? Seriously? Okay, Faya, you have any relatives named Maryam? You're who? Great aunt. Oh, okay, okay, your great aunt. All right, my sister's name is Maryam. So, so the point is that often when we are imagining Islam, especially Islam in 2007 in America, we're imagining something that is this very, very foreign thing, almost the way we think of Hinduism. Uh, but if you look at even the names of the people, the locations, it's very, very close to what we speak of when we speak of Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and such. Uh, the monotheism of Islam is more like the monotheism of Judaism. The personality of the divine, however, is more like the personality of the divine in Christianity. Right? So replace love in Christianity with mercy in Islam. Right. And the word mercy is not even sufficient. It's like an intimating mercy. Like when mercy is given, it's with the purpose of bringing people closer. Well, that, in a nutshell, would be a high-speed tour through, through Islam. Any questions about anything at all? Yes, sir? So is Jesus the Messiah? Yeah. So if I have to be the son of Mary instead of the son of God, I'm still we're saying the Islamic paradigm that does not that does not necessitate him being the son of God. It is God who is making him the Messiah. Okay, so yeah. it, it seems almost like Muhammad is like the more famous one in Islam versus Jesus. Why why is that? If, if Jesus is the Messiah. Very good. So, <clears throat> the role of Muhammad 
He is the completion of Islam. So how do I become a believer who is embodying this message of no God but God? Uh, it is through following the example of Muhammad, right, from then on. And there's even narratives that uh, Muhammad has this one, for lack of a better term, mystical event in his lifetime called the night journey, where in the span of a night or a blink of an eye, he travels from Mecca all the way to Jerusalem, meets all the prophets who have ever lived, and then he ascends to heaven. And he goes through all the levels of heaven, all the levels of hell, and then he has this other special meeting with the divine. And eventually he returns back. And in that moment when he's meeting all the prophets, they're all praying together, and he's the one leading the prayer. Essentially because he is the completion of this whole process. Right? So Jesus in the Islamic paradigm is not bringing new teachings. Right? He will be this figure. Okay, so Masih... Not unlike the word Messiah means what? It means touched. Okay. But not in the sense that we would use the word savior of the world. Right? That's the divine. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes? The word Quran has a couple of meanings. There's a couple of theories about its meanings. Uh, it means either the greatest recitation or the greatest gathering. So the word for village is a place of gathering, which is Qurra, and Qur'an would mean the greatest gathering. And then Iqra is to recite, so the greatest recitation. So when it's understood to mean the greatest recitation of guidance, or the greatest gathering of knowledge. You know. So think about this, you know, what does Bible mean? Biblios, bibliography, book, right? Uh, there's difference of opinion. Uh, whether or not these are the books we speak of when we speak of, of, of the revelations in the Islamic paradigm. So the Torah, um, the general consensus among Muslim scholars, Islamic scholars, is that it's more or less the same as the Torah. I mean, the argument is that some things have been changed. There are some Islamic scholars who say the Injil is the same as the Gospels. I think that's actually incorrect, because nobody claims that the Gospels are revelations to Jesus. There are some Islamic scholars who, I don't know if you're familiar with, with biblical criticism, historical criticism, there's this idea of the Gospel of Q, the Kela, which is what Matthew and Mark may be taking from. Some argue that that may be the Injil, but it's purely scholarly speculation. I've never seen any, any proof for it. Any other questions? Yes? Where does the major split Okay, very good question. So, when we speak of the different sectarian groups in Islam, there's, we probably have to put, it, put them into four categories. We know two of them. So, there's Sunni, there's Shia. Don't say Shiite, that just sounds nasty. There's another group no one's ever heard of that is just as old called the Ibadis, and they're very small. And then the fourth group, which would be those people who don't fit into any of the above three. So we might say heterodox or heteroprax. So what we commonly say, even though it's not correct, is that the difference is over who or who should have been the leader of the Muslim community after Muhammad's death. Okay. That's actually not the difference. The, What's common among these two traditions is that both rely upon the Quran 
and the prophet, but how do we interpret what the prophet is teaching? The Sunnis rely upon the companions of the prophet. So think of them as being not unlike the disciples of Jesus. Uh, except here we're talking about about 150,000 people. Okay. And in Shia tradition, they rely on specific descendants of the prophet that are called imams. And so these are all part of the family of the prophet. And these are the companions of the prophet. But they're specific figures. And different sectarian groups within Shia tradition will have uh, will extend the list of imams in different ways. Even the Baha'i tradition uh, takes itself through these imams and says that the imam of our era is this person, Baha'u'llah, from about a century ago. If you go a couple blocks south of, of Loyola, you'll see the, the Ismaili Center. They are a subset of the Shias, and in their belief, the imams continue all, three, all the way through to today, and the current imam of our time, he's titled the Aga Khan. Mainstream Shiism, which is, which is um, uh, the vast majority of Shias, have 12 specific imams, the last of which is from about 1,200 years ago. Yeah. That's the actual difference. It's sources of guidance. Yeah. And then looking back, often theology gets created at some point, and then people look back and reinterpret history. Then there's a difference of opinion over who should have been the leader of the Muslims afterwards. The Ibadis are just as old. They are. They also go to the Quran and the Prophet, but they are literalists in interpretation. No metaphor. So thus, it would follow that there aren't too many of them, because if you have no metaphor, you have no room for flexibility, which means you're not going to grow. So there's about a million Ibadis. About 80% of the Muslim world is Sunnis. Give or take 20% of Shias, and then everyone else. If you're familiar with the Nation of Islam, which is what Malcolm X was part of before he breaks off, that would be categorized here. This would be sort of like how we categorize the Mormons in Christianity. They're not really Protestants, right? But they would still be under the umbrella of the followers of Jesus, right? So the Nation of Islam would be over here. Any other questions? Yes? Okay, so <clears throat> there's no central authority in Islam. No. Uh, but how authority plays out in different communities does vary. So for example, in Chicago, there's a Council of Islamic Organizations, which is this umbrella organization that all the Muslim organizations are part of. But it has no authority, right? They give opinions. But those opinions are not, bounding, are not binding on anyone, nor, do they, nor are they delivered in the sense that they're binding on anyone. There are sub-communities within each of these where people do follow a leader. Right? And usually the leader is someone who has some, uh, some advanced level of knowledge that people turn to. Like just like any field, if you're going to a physician, you're going to have a physician that you trust. And if a physician gives you an opinion, you might go for a second opinion. That's essentially how a lot of this plays out. Right? But there is no central authority. So in this way, it's more like Protestant than Catholic. Right? It's like Catholic in the sense that along with both of these, there's a whole legacy of scholars. Right? And thus, that legacy, another way to think of the legacy that I'm calling the tradition, is this centuries-long conversation where they agree on certain things, or they might agree on boundaries, and then they argue left and right, they disagree, agree left and right. 
and that is thus what becomes a tradition. What else? Yes? Can you speak to Sharia law? Like, what is it? Are there different yeah. interpretations of it? Because, like, it typically has, like, negative press. Oh, totally. Yeah. So. so, we spoke about the law and spirituality. Am I racist? So, the essential function of the prophet and the Quran is to guide the believers to the divine. That's the essential purpose. And many of the teachings can get branched off into two aspects of life, just like uh, what I mentioned at the beginning, your internal condition and your external condition. Your internal condition would be the condition and the purity of your heart. The external condition will be your actions. And this is the way of the Sufis, a.k.a. Islamic spirituality, and this is the way of Sharia, a.k.a. Islamic law. And sometimes you'll see Sharia spelled with an H at the end. It's a very, very subtle H. Sometimes there's an apostrophe. The word Sharia itself means the path that leads to water. And so what does it mean in this context? The path that leads to relief. So philosophically, the purpose of the law is to facilitate a relationship with the divine. And this gets really important because sometimes law itself can get so convoluted, you lose sight of what, it, what its purpose is. And then the law focuses on four different arenas of life. One is acts of worship. So have you heard of the five pillars? Some of you may have heard of that. So these are the core acts of worship. One is a declaration of faith where you state that there is no God but God, Muhammad's messenger of God, the five daily prayers, fasting in the month of Ramadan, uh, in annual charity, and then a pilgrimage to Mecca. The easiest way to remember this is that time is built into all of these. So how long does it make to take, uh, how long does it take to make the declaration of faith? A moment. And then the five daily prayers, a moment a day, and fasting in the month of Ramadan, the annual charity, and then pilgrimage once in a lifetime, a moment a day, a month in a year, a lifetime. And then social interaction. Easy matters like marriage, divorce, and food. Food would also often be this category because there are dietary restrictions in Islam not unlike what we see in Judaism. And it's not just you don't eat this, but this, you can, as you can imagine, this is also affecting with whom you do eat. And then business matters, loans, purchases, etc., etc and then governance. What is it ultimately, these are prescriptions on how to live a life that facilitates your relationship with the divine. The first three are the ones that are most relevant to a life of a Muslim living in America. Governance plays out not in the sense of we have to uh, implant an Islamic government. It's more a set of principles. And so is Sharia a threat? Uh, I don't really think so. Has Sharia been made into a threat? Yeah, absolutely. There's about 11 states that have worked to pass laws against the establishment of Sharia in America, and all those states have tiny, tiny Muslim populations. So we definitely are you know, a current bogeyman for, for a lot of these matters. But yeah, that's Islamic law. So the bad press comes from the, uh, the bad press doesn't even come from governance. 
uh, it's the assumption that this population of people wants to take us over. Like when I was younger, when I was a college student, we were in the Cold War. And what we kept hearing in, in popular culture about the Soviets was they want to take away all of our freedoms. That's exactly what we hear about Muslims today. They hate us for our freedoms. It's literally the same rhetoric. Instead of the Iron Curtain, it's the veil, but it's the same mythology. So it's in our history, we always have to have a battle with somebody, East versus West. Any other questions? Did I say everything correctly? Seriously, you don't have anybody named Mariam in your family? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, talk to your family, and they can probably find a Maria for you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. So, Prescriptions, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. like, if you do something wrong, you don't get like punished for it. It's just something that you're not getting. If you, there is a section on crime and punishment that, as a precursor, requires society to be healthy. So, what we can add to this drawing is a third element, which is social. And there we get into the language of justice. And usually when we're speaking about justice, there's four arenas of life that are most discussed in this discourse. And what we're saying here is that if I'm the only Muslim in society, it is my obligation to work in my capacity to make sure these are provided for everyone. Or if everyone's Muslim in society, they have to make sure this is provided for everyone. So these are society's obligations to its people. Everyone must have reasonable access to healthy shelter and sustenance. Everyone must have the ability to earn fair trade and to travel to be able to earn trade. Everyone must be made felt secure from fear. This third one is actually much more difficult because this is qualitative. How do you know if people are actually feeling secure? It's not related to crime and punishment. And everyone's religious devotions must be protected. So what are we saying here? That these are the obligations that Muslims have to everybody else in their society. So in the same way that these are obligations that I have to the divine, these are obligations that I have to you. So on the day of judgment, the divine can hold me account for whether I'm fulfilling this or not. And everybody else in society can hold me to account for whether or not I'm fulfilling these. And so a healthy society will have these fulfilled. 100% probably not. In the way we say like full employment is like maybe 6%. Right. Now why? Well for starters, it is a command from the divine. But then why from there? To make it as easy as possible for people to turn to the divine. Meaning, if I don't have to worry about food on my table, even if a bare minimum is provided, I'll have brain space. Likewise for all of these things. So this is not Sharia, this, these are my social obligations. This would be probably the closest thing to Catholic social teaching, something along those lines. Any other questions? And everything I'm sharing is pretty much from the Quran itself. 
What are you teaching next semester? Next semester, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I'm teaching Theo 295, Intro to Islam. And Tuesday, Thursdays, I'm teaching a literature course called The Quran is Literature. So we're looking at it as a literary text rather than a theology text. That will be a very unorthodox class. Because we'll study a lot of movies and TV shows and songs to get a sense on how to study the Quran. Any other questions? Let's thank Omar. Okay. Thank you. Both presentations are so brief and introductory, um, but I think it's so important in a world that we are um, trying to prepare you for at Loyola that you are going to be um, working in neighborhoods or, or working in communities, corporations, businesses, living in neighborhoods where there is going to be tremendous religious diversity.